Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire production. production. Hi, you look cozy here in your inside today. Hi. Yeah, I'm at a, a really lovely historic hotel um, on Whidbey Island called Captain Whidbey's. Well, you know, it's really appropriate that you're at a like, like historic place because when autumn comes, I tend to feel very nostalgic. And I'm wearing my John F. Kennedy t-shirt today. You can see that. We choose to go to the moon. And then yeah. I, wanted to, I wanted to play something for you to see, bring you some nostalgia, okay? Okay. <laughs> Isn't that great? Yes. I sort of miss it a little bit, don't you? For those of you who don't know, that was um the theme song or the entry song for Dr. Stu's podcast for many years. Yeah. 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 It's Hans Zimmer. I definitely recognized it. <laughs> so, uh, good morning and good, good morning. morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, and good e middle of the night to you. <laughs> good middle of the night. <laughs> uh, so, podcast two thirty three came out this morning. Um, people know we record about a week ahead of time, so I just checked we're still clean. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we're going to be talking about this stuff, but I wanted to give a preview of what we're going to talk about today. A, a couple of bursts I've got, finally. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we're going to follow up on some previous topics, like is Pitocin off-label, and um, do the laws of physics apply to placentas? Do the laws of physics apply to placentas? Correct. Yes. And then we're going to take a deep dive, something I think is really important for me, into the ethics of emergency youth authorization mandates and surrendering our bodies to the state. Okay, yeah. so that's going to be the main topic today, but we got a lot to talk about, we, uh, bef but before we do, of course, let's talk about Element, okay, because Element is one of our partners, and they are a tasty electrolyte drink with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt, <clears throat> no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following a keto or low-carb or paleo diet, or you don't really have to be on a diet don't want to get all your sodium from potato chips you're probably better off um, uh, drinking element or mixing element uh, into your drinks it contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio of 1000 milligrams of sodium 200 milligrams of potassium 60 milligrams of magnesium all essential with of course none of the junk no sugar no yes no coloring, no BS, correct. No BS. Right. Um, and, you know, it's a good replacement for some of those sports drinks. So if you um, are trying to stay away from sugar and you want to just go in the direction of having something more natural, this is a good option. Yeah, and it comes in Bliss's uh, favorite fla flavor, which is mango chili, but also watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raspberry salt, which is my favorite, raw unflavored lemon habanero, and chocolate salt. So if you go to their website, drinklmnt.com and put in the backslash birthing instincts, you get a free sample pack uh, with only the cost of shipping. Thank you, Element. Awesome. Okay. So um, 
You should see, you should see, my, you should see my notes today. <laughs> so I'm, um, I'm leaving here to go visit a couple midwives. Yes, you said, you said Washington. Uh, we're recording, we're recording early today. Yeah. So, um, I'm leaving, I'm leaving here and I'm heading over to a birth center actually here on Whidbey. Um, Cynthia Jaffe owns it. It's called Green Bank Birth Center. And she's retiring after um, 30 plus years of being a midwife in this area. And she wants to turn over her practice to somebody that will support her community. So, you know, I, I don't know. If I don't this know. Is it for me, but I'm going to, I'm going to go and check it out and meet her because, you know, for me, meeting a, a midwife who's been in practice for that long is always really special. Um, and then I'm going to jump on a ferry and go over to another historic town called uh, Port Townsend and, and kind of check that out. Um, and then I last week, I don't know if I mentioned it last week, but I went on this, um, this, I don't know, this talk that Carol gave, Carol Gauchi, Gatsuchi, I don't know how to pronounce her name, Carol, forgive me. She said she was going to um, see us when we went to that conference in Ecuador. She was also speaking there, um, but we didn't get to see her. So she spoke on classical midwifery, um, which to me, I wasn't really sure what that is, but it's basically traditional midwifery. Um, and her, her talk, really moved me deeply. Um, she talked about the current um, situation with COVID. Um, she talked about what's happening with midwifery, that this classical or traditional midwifery is becoming um, extinct, which I am very passionate about taking this knowledge and passing it down. So I am going to invite her to come on the show, but I'm going to meet with her today. And uh, I feel I feel very excited about connecting with this midwife. She also has been practicing for over 30 years um, up here in Washington. So yeah, well, I, I understand the over 30 year thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm over 30 years too. And and uh, that's exciting, Bliss. And you know what? The world is an oyster for you right now. You could uh, find you end up on Whidbey Island. You know, nothing wrong with Whidbey Island. Nothing wrong with Whidbey Island. Yeah, so yeah, it'll be a You get a lot nice of visitors day. there. You get a lot of visitors. <laughs> Good. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, it's a great, I mean, it's a great uh, vacation destination, that area. So mm -hmm. people, people would come. Yeah, so, that's true. So she has a practice, but not a birth center. Or is it a birth center? um cynthia has the birth center carol does not she no, just right. sees clients out of her beautiful home and has a farm and yeah so i'm excited that, that's so tell great. me tell me about your birth yeah i was just gonna say i want to give congratulations to my longtime clients uh david and alicia paladino um they gave birth at home recently uh to their second baby and we were fortunate enough to be involved in their first birth um five years ago for bosco and uh, little Gian, Gianni, excuse me, came in um, his own way. He chose to come in breach um, at home. Oh, wow. He was Frank Breach. And she um, had a kind of a putsy labor for a day or so. And then David texted me a picture of this just came out. And it was like her fluid and it had meconium in it. And we, we dropped everything. I was in the office. It was a Thursday. Uh, I was in the office. We, I just left like within five minutes. I said goodbye to my clients and my students stayed and uh, Dr. Flores was there and she stayed and talked to the clients while I split 
and got there 18 minutes before Gianni made his entrance. Wow. And uh, yeah, but Haley was there. Haley, the midwife, was there. And uh, so it, it went on beautiful. It was beautiful. It was, uh, you know, and, and then I, I saw that um, Dula Chanel, who was on her podcast recently, yeah. she was dueling a client recently who had a, a breach hospital birth. So that's exciting. A vaginal breach birth. Um, the doctor did pipers. He says he always does pipers. So he put piper forceps on the baby because obviously she was in lithotomy position, but that's exciting. But it's just- Do you nice want to mention the doctor in hospital? No, it was somewhere in Texas. Oh, in Texas. Okay. Yeah, somewhere mm -hmm. in Texas. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but it's exciting. It's exciting to, uh, to know that that breech birth is a real thing and that I teach it. I'll be in San Antonio um, this weekend. Uh, teaching breech birth, more lecturing than, than hands-on. And then I was honored by, I'm going to be giving the uh, commencement address to a graduating class of midwives from the Association of Texas Midwives in San Antonio this weekend. So I'm very excited about that. It's really an honor Great. for me. First time awesome. I to do something like that. And I was nervous at first. And then uh, once I got, I, I got some ideas in my head and I, I sat down one day and I wrote a speech and Sort of, I've been editing it every day so that um, it becomes more familiar in my mind. I'm going to probably have to read it. It's not like when I give a talk or lectures where I just know this stuff, the stuff I'm going to have to read. And I'm not going to have a teleprompter, so I'm going to have to read it off paper. So I'm going to print it out in really big print. So that <laughs> Good. Have somebody record it. Yeah, I think it will be recorded. And I, I think uh, it'll probably be videoed and maybe we'll somehow get a hold of that. It'll be cool. Okay, good. And then I also, on, on uh, Halloween morning, we had a couple that came out from Pennsylvania. Uh, she had monodi twins, and she came out at about 34, 34 and a half weeks, got an Airbnb in Topanga because uh, she didn't have any choices there. Um, everybody was telling her what she couldn't do yeah, or what she had to do, and uh, she wasn't going to have any of it. She had a home birth with her first kid, so she was a multip also. and. Um, on uh, Halloween morning, she broke her bag of waters uh, about 3.30 in the morning. I heard about that. Then I didn't hear anything. I woke up about quarter to eight. I hadn't heard a word. So I texted the group and um, someone texted back that said, yeah, they're coming strong. It's like, oh, <laughs> you, think, you think you should have told us or something like that? So we all high, I hightailed it over there. We got there about an hour little bit over, more than an hour before the both babies came out eight minutes apart head down head down baby girls wow I just posted a little something on Instagram this morning about that in my story but uh I wanted to wait for permission and wanted to wait for mom to uh to settle in but they're going to stick around for about a month uh, before they head back to Pennsylvania so that's very cool and again now you, something that that can be done it's it's not crazy um you know because choices uh, for women are so limited in places, this is what people are going to seek out. So uh, it was uh, was beautiful. Oh, good! Yeah, Yay. yeah, it was. And uh, you know, and the and both and both births, the older sibling, you know, came in later, and they got to partake in it a little bit in their own way. And for them, birth will never be the same, and pregnancy will never be the same. They'll have this experience, and they'll remember it. Yeah, they're imprinted with that knowledge that this is just normal part of life. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of follow up. Um, 
we talked about Pitocin a couple podcasts ago when we talked about uh, labs and jabs, I think, or something, or, or no, we talked about uh, off label. Correct, yeah. off label. Mm-hmm. And uh, from listener Kelsey, who got this from the Down to Birth podcast, did you get this? You got this email too? No, but you 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 shared it with me on Instagram. All right, do you, do you have it with you, or do you want me to read it? No, I don't have it with me. Okay, I'll read it. So you know, we were questioning whether Pitocin was off label or not, and you kind of looked it up while we were talking, and thought maybe it wasn't off label. Yeah, and, just what I saw quickly. And I don't know whether it is or it isn't, but this is what came from the Down to Birth podcast, who we respect. Pitocin was first approved in the early 50s. Then in 1978, an FDA advisory committee removed its approval for elective labor induction due to severe reactions and side effects. It was never approved for labor augmentation, speeding up labor. A study in the early 2000s revealed Pitocin is used for off-label purposes, unquote. 97% of the time in the US, this guy who works for the International Federation of OBGYN said Pitocin is the most abused drug in the world today. <laughs> <laughs> it may be true, actually. I don't know. Fentanyl is a second. Uh, fent- fentanyl will be a, a close second, I think. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, think about all of everyone laboring. How many people in labor get Pitocin? Oh, yeah. Most in the hospital. Yeah. Either before or after birth. At least. Yeah. So many, so many uh, inductions happening now. Yeah, the question isn't whether Pitocin is good or bad. It's how come so many providers use Pitocin for non-FDA approved purposes? Um, and why do so many women need something for labor? Well, that's your that's your thing, Bliss. And you say it all the time and it fits with just about everything we talk about. Yeah, because it's all just nonsense. Yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all fuckery. Like we got to get fuckery in at least once every podcast. But <laughs> it is. You're right. Everything that's happened. There's something else I'm going to talk about later today that that it's like, why are we doing that? Oh, yeah. it's about cord clamping. Yeah. It was about cord clamping. And, um, uh, the, you know, I, I just read a little bit up because the next topic we talked about was a little bit from last week, I think we talked about this crazy thing about this blood flow backwards in the placenta. Remember that? Yeah. You know, I, 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 I put these common sense posts up, you know, like, come on guys, like, let's think about it. And I swear, every every time I do, there's one person or two people who are like, can you show me the science behind that? Um, and, you know, the one that really got me last week is I, I saw a post about, um, do you know what the Welcher's position is? No. So it's basically when you kind of um, like if you imagine a hospital bed and you and you have a woman with her feet on the floor and she's kind of bent over backwards on the edge of the bed. So her hips are lower than her abdomen, um, which is a position to try and help get the baby into the pelvis. If you're having a dysfunctional labor pattern, it's very uncomfortable. But, you know, someone was like, can I get the studies on this? I'm like, who do you think? would even study this position, first of all. Plus, there's just wisdom. We learn things, especially as midwives, um, just from from experimenting and knowing the body and knowing how birth works. And, um, and that is valid. You don't have to have a study for everything. Um, That's so true. I always used to say long ago, and I've sort of dropped, I haven't said this a lot lately, but I would... 
the same thing that would come up in my in discussion with people. And I said, you know, I don't need a study to tell me it's safer to cross the street when the light is green. Right. Than when or when you're the one, the one that came up for me this morning was when your mom told you that you needed to wipe your butt, did you need a study? I mean, it's like, right. I don't even want to ask why that came up to you this morning. (laughs) Well, because it's just like somebody knows and they pass it down to you. You don't need a study for everything. This 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 cultural shift in needing to see scientific evidence for everything is just um, it's. Yeah. And not only that, range, you know, that scientific evidence is completely corrupted and there's no way to know whether scientific evidence is good or bad. Right. So a study doesn't tell you anything unless you analyze the study. And how many people are going to, as I always say, look into the material and method section of the study on wiping your butt to determine <laughs> how many people were wiping front to back or back to front or what type, what quality of toilet paper were they using? Or I mean, you could you could you could go nuts. Right. About that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's all about it's all about you know the who's going to pay for this these studies and where is where is the money going to be made from it so there's a lot of stuff that's important to me and well, the people government, like the government me. pays for some pretty bizarre studies <laughs> so you could submit a grant for wiping your butt or for backflow in the placenta i suppose and you could probably get some <laughs> nih grant for it because you look at their funding sandflies and puppies and they're funding studying transgenderism in in uh extinct tribes and, and, you know, that they study everything. So you could, but I, but it, there's no point because it's not going to prove what common sense is already going to tell you. It's not going to prove something different. Right. So let's talk briefly about the placenta. Okay. Why is it that people say if you, if you hold the baby above the mother's belly, or if you lay cord clamping for more than a minute, that blood is going to drain out of the baby back into the placenta or the mother. Right. Um, because they're idiots? Would that be a good, <laughs> <laughs> would that, would that be a good answer? Um, if, if you hold the baby, I've, I've heard this before, um, you can't put the baby on the mother's abdomen because it's above the placenta and the blood will drain out of the baby back into the placenta. Yeah, and they, this is what was taught. Right. I mean, I've I've heard that from many providers within the last couple think, of weeks. Think about it's, it's think about that. Like this. If say you have a placenta previa mm-hmm. and the baby's in utero. And you're standing up all the time. Mm-hmm. How come the blood doesn't drain out of the baby? Oh, because it goes around and comes back in again. It's a circulation. Because it's a closed yeah. system. It's a pipe. It's like yeah. a radiator. It goes around, it gets reoxygenated, it gets rid of the bad stuff and in comes the good stuff. And then it comes around again and it's a closed system. So whatever goes out comes in. And the only reason that blood is squeezed out of the baby at the end and there's a percentage of the baby's blood volume into the placenta is because of the squeezing, like the baby gets squeezed. And that's why delayed cord clamping is important because normally the hemoglobin or the hematocrit of the blood, whether you draw it from the placenta or the baby is going to be the same because it's constantly moving. When a baby gets squeezed, as it comes out, some of the blood gets squeezed into the placenta and that blood needs to come back in the baby. But after a certain period of time, it doesn't start to go out of the baby more than it comes in. It just keeps going around until eventually the cord stops pulsating. So when people say that we can't, we have to delay cord clamping only one minute or they come up with these deadlines, you always come up with your common sense thing. Well, how come that doesn't true for a tiger or isn't true for a cow? 
or isn't true for any other mammal, only humans can delay their cord clamping for one minute. What's that all about? Yeah, well, I I looked into a bunch of it yesterday. I was really trying to find the actual like physiologic um, information to pass on. But a lot of the studies and stuff that I would click on, I don't have access to. So it, it kept being difficult for me to find that information. But there was a website called concordneonatal.com. And they're actually a company, which is interesting, Stu, that has the equipment to be able to keep cord intact and resuscitate in the hospital next mm-hmm. to mom. Yeah. So it exists, and, but they have some great information on here. And what they said is research shows that gravity has little to no effect on placental transfusion and circulation. The main driver for placental circulation is the baby's breathing, causing the pressure difference that pulls blood into its own circulation. So once the baby is born, there are a couple of uh, physiologic transitions that happen in those first few minutes, which allows the blood to pump all the way through the heart and start to oxygenate through the lungs, which wasn't happening before the baby was born. The mom's uh, blood coming through the placenta was what the baby was getting oxygenated by. So um, it, I also looked at a study that talked about multiple uh, times and each time, like I think it was uh, one, three and four minutes, um, the amount of blood in the placenta versus what was in the baby always increased um, with time. So it never, it never got back and forth. It was always a percentage that continued to increase towards the baby from the placenta. Yeah. So um, gravity has little to no effect on placental transfusion. It's the baby that draws the blood into its system. Of course it is. Of course it's a pumped system. Yeah. Yeah. So stop passing along that If you have higher pressure down below, then things will flow uphill. Yeah. Anybody who drives over the Sepulveda Pass in California will know, or I think it's Sepulveda Pass. No, no, no. It's the pass that goes into Santa Clarita. There's this big thing with water running down the mountain. You can see it running down the mountain, but it has to get pumped up the mountain in order to run down the mountain. So somehow they're able to pump the water uphill. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Common sense. Um, Since I know you have a lot to talk about, but I did have a couple of things that I didn't get to talk about last week because time just went so fast when we were talking to Michelle. Well, look, because I had, I had Liz other. So there were a few things that I wanted to make sure and mention. One is, um, that I didn't get a chance to talk about within the first minute or so, especially what I'm talking about is home birth because we already know what's happening in the hospital. But with midwives um, and those of you who are new midwives or aspiring midwives, don't touch the baby right away unless you need to. Um, Use the cord for uh, figuring out how the heart rate is going if you are in question. and only use a stethoscope if you need to. Don't do that standard. Leave the baby alone. You don't need to be putting a stethoscope and interrupting that process unless you absolutely need to. And the other thing that we didn't really talk about, you kind of alluded to um, bliss kisses, but um, I do mouth to mouth. And I know it's 
it's not what's taught. And I know it's not necessarily what's popular. Um, but for me, when I am giving breaths for a baby, being able to feel what's happening with the baby, um, seeing how the pressure that I'm giving the baby and how it responds in terms of, you know, it's a tactile thing. It's an energetic thing. And when you put this bag in between you and the baby, you are completely disconnected from the actual being, the actual body that's in front of you. So I just wanted to mention that because I think it's important. And that's, yeah, I'm and sure, the way I, that it was done I, all the, since the beginning of time. I admire you for saying that because I learned from you and from Alex, really, mm -hmm. um, that technique. Uh, I think the Ambu bag is sort of something that's medicalized. It's yeah, germophobic. Uh, you're afraid that you're going to get blood on your mouth or you're going to give the baby something or blah, blah, blah. You know, we're all human. An ideal situation. Uh, you won't need to do anything. As you said, don't touch the baby. But I have done what you've done. I mean, when there's just something going on and sometimes, you know, that bag doesn't make a good seal and you're putzing around and then, you know, you can do it with your lips. You can do a lot of, of, of tactile sensation. You get better, much better, as you said, sense of right. what's happening. Right. Right. Exactly. And remember when I read, um, you know, you know that you're going to have all the, all the, uh, the, the, uh, techno geek medicine people are all going to be pulling their hair out after what you just said, but great. I know. Awesome. I, know. I love it. Speaking of hair, I don't have much left. I know your hair looks great. I got a um, right. Do you remember when I read sister morning stars? She's the one who, yeah, I do. So, I remember sitting in your kitchen when you read it. Yeah. So there's this one thing that she said that I really wanted to read. The pressure to follow NRP alone has robbed the wisdom of undisturbed maternal behavior on newborns first breaths as a critical and life-saving skill. So basically, you know, us stepping in also instinctually mothers knew what to do. If you watch animal videos like that, that elephant that kicks its baby to get it to come into its body, you know, there's this instinct that happens. Um, so don't, don't lose that in all of, in all of this clinical conversation about what to do. Don't lose the touch and the, and the instincts and the connection between mom and baby, because ultimately that's the most important thing. And, and the studies are supporting it with this delayed cord clamping um, which really should be called physiologic based cord clamping. You know, right? it's hard. It's really hard, Bliss, to 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 honor what you just said because in most training programs, you get indoctrinated into doing one thing, and if you try to do it a different way, you're going to get your hand slapped. So people end up just falling in line. But you're right. You need to stand up for for things that common sense would tell you or nature would tell you or or with the wisdom, wisdom. the wisdom mm -hmm. of the um that's funny we said the same at the same time <laughs> um <laughs> i get to see you unfortunately people listening don't get to see you but i get to see you uh yeah anyway so you know what i'm saying i do okay, okay thanks for letting me follow up on those couple points all right, one quick uh, stage one thinking example, which I heard on the radio yesterday, which I thought was pretty funny. It's out of San Francisco and also some and some decisions made in Washington. But 
you know, we've had this big thing up in a lot of cities and have defunded the police, right? Mm-hmm. So defunding the police leads to obviously increasing crime, especially when DAs aren't punishing people for, for petty crimes. So in San Francisco, they've had an increased break-in of cars. People are smashing windows and stealing things out of cars. And so there's been an increased demand for auto glass and auto glass repair. And the prices have tripled for auto glass repair and there's a shortage of supply. So then you look at what the lockdowns have done and the subsidies for people not working. Right. And then you have, so you have decreased manufacturing, you have decreased labor force, you have a decreased supply due to decrease in raw materials and log jams at the ports. So you have no, you have increased costs and you have no glass. So <laughs> these two things, let's defund the police and let's lock down and close our manufacturing. All right. Sounded good at the beginning, you know, two weeks to slow the spread or whatever it was. And now we have people driving around in San Francisco with cardboard on their window. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I always talk about stage one thinking. It's common, you know, it's, it's, it's like con- continuous fetal monitoring. Sounded good. Does it do good? No, but let's do it anyway. That sort of thing. So right. yeah, nobody thinks down the road of what the consequences of what their actions are doing. Parents have to do that, but politicians <laughs> don't have to do that. They're not around when the consequences of their decisions are usually um, manifested. Were you going to say something? On a different note, I'm waiting for you to finish. Oh, I was going to go off and do a commercial, but that's okay. What are you going to talk about? Oh, I I, I wanted to say, did you know what yesterday was? Because I wanted to wish you a happy, happy vitamin D, National Vitamin D Day. <laughs> <laughs> I missed it. Oh, Stu, you didn't celebrate National Vitamin D Day? No, I would have taken an extra dose. <laughs> it <laughs> made me laugh. Are you actually, you know, we talked about, I know, I know. There's national, so who decided on that? I don't know. All right, so our assignment for next week, Liz, is to come up with um, a national day for something, Okay. <laughs> National Common Sense Day. Actually, we know we could take suggestions on Instagram from listeners. Okay, I'll do that. Yeah, National Common Sense Day. That would be, well, that, no, that one should be every day. That should be a, a <laughs> annual holiday. Uh, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about my favorite topic for our, our, our uh, sponsors and our partners is bamboobies. Boobies. Yep. <laughs> so anyway... I was looking through my bamboobies box today because I got a supply box from something. I know, it's so unfair. I know. Well, when you get here, you can have it all because I'm not going <laughs> to use any of it. But you know, they have the um, the nipple uh, with the nursing pads that you like. They really they have. Yeah, they're uh, not nipple shields; they're nursing pads. That's right, and they're made out of bamboo, and they even have a bamboo like uh, tank top, which I don't know how they make it t- anything out of bamboo that's like soft, but it's very soft. Oh, bamboo is a wonderful, a wonderful material. Yeah, it's super yeah, soft. And so if you go to their website at bamboobies.com and use the code word instincts, you get 40% off. And they have a whole like uh, market there. They have all these teas, which sound pretty good. They got a nursing tea, which tastes is apple cinnamon, a black cherry recovery tea, a sweet peach 
uh, heartburn tea, a lemon ginger morning sickness tea, a mango passion fruit nursing tea. I mean, good stuff. Not for me, but. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And it's good for mommies, good for babies and good for the environment. So definitely check them out and uh, get a, get a gift for the next person that you have that is pregnant and is going to need all that good stuff for them. Yeah. And supporting our sponsors helps support us. So we appreciate it. If you do that, go to bamboobies.com and use the code instincts for, for element it's birthing instincts for bamboobies. It's instincts. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. After that light moment, um, I got a lot to talk about today. I don't know. Sometimes things come in waves and it, it, it all seems to fit together to me. And I, and there's so much going on. Um, with the mandates and here in Los Angeles now, I think it's this week or whatever else, the vaccine passport thing is supposed to go in and you're not supposed to be able to allow it to go into a restaurant or movie theater. I don't know that people are gonna comply with that. I don't know that restaurant owners are gonna comply with that, but ultimately the idea that they're gonna do something that's that draconian and they can find businesses or they're gonna turn businesses into little, um, you know, these poor $10 an hour people are gonna to have to be getting harassed by people who are angry that they can't go into the restaurant because they don't have one or they forgot their vaccine passport at home or whatever else. And the idea that you need a vaccine passport to get into a restaurant or to a movie theater, but you don't need an ID to vote. And, and so the absurdity is just driving people away from trusting anybody in a position of authority. And that's why, um, well, for instance, let me give you an example. Um, the New England Journal, I, I, in my feed this morning, there was a New England Journal article about first trimester vaccination and miscarriage. It's a different article now. Funny how they keep coming out in the New England Journal and they keep saying the same thing. Now, this is the same New England Journal that changed its table and removed the 82% down to 12% or where they removed that. And they also had to retract an article last year about, I think, hydroxychloroquine or, or one of those medications that they published and they retracted it. So their reputation is sort of in the mud. But so this one comes out and confirms that it's perfectly safe. Let's see, they say, our study found no evidence of an increased risk for early pregnancy loss after COVID-19 vaccination and adds to the findings from other reports supporting COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy. But to me, they have no credibility. So when I read something like this, even in the New England Journal, I don't trust them anymore. Yeah. And that's my confirmation bias and I freely admit that. But the first sentence of this thing tells you everything you need to know. Tell me if you catch the, the, the um, you catch what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Pregnant women with coronavirus disease 2019 are at increased risk for adverse outcomes. All right, I know that you, I know that the minute I say it, you'll know it. So okay. what does increased risk mean? Oh yes, um, it's not specific. So it could be a very small number still. Yeah, it could be two people got it instead of one. Right. Okay. And I know that the percentages are small because I've looked it up before. Yeah. So, you know, there's been a 70% increase in home birth over the last year. Right. We went from 1% to 1.7%. It's, like, <laughs> it's, you know, it, that's an increase. That's a significant increase. It is, but it doesn't really mean anything statistically. Yeah. So, what I like our listeners to understand, and probably most of them do by now, 
is that when you see somebody say increased risk or, or um, uh, higher risk or you know something like that, that means it's a, you should you should recognize that immediately that they're not telling you anything. Because unless you know what the denominator is, unless you know what the actual risk is, they're just they, they could be skewing their counseling. I'm trying to be very careful when I counsel clients in my office not to use this terminology. I try to be more, very specific. People will say, well, what's the increased risk if I've got twins and I want to, I don't want to be induced at 37 weeks. My doctor says I need to be induced at 37 weeks because the risk increases. I go, yeah, it does. You know, it goes from 90, you know, <laughs> goes from 99.93% to 99.54% of a chance of it not happening in three weeks. Right. So right. yeah, it does increase. So they're not lying, but they're not telling you the truth either. Well, you, you need to, you know, this is your risk assessment that you need to figure out. And I've, and I've said this many times, like someone could look at something and say 99 to one, one person could say 99% chance is enough for me that I don't feel like I need to do that. But another person, if they say there's even 1% chance that this could happen, I want to take action. So that that's, that's, that's up to you and how you determine how you live your life. And that's not for someone else to decide. But you know, right now, when we see these prestigious journals like the Lancet or New England Journal or JAMA coming out with information that supports what you and I would say common sense doesn't necessarily support it, it, it and what the state wants you to do, like the state wants you to be vaccinated. Obviously. Right. <laughs> And we know that there's a lot of flaws in the vaccine, and we know that there's a lot of questions about who needs to be vaccinated and whether the vaccines are even working. We know this. It doesn't matter to them. And when, yeah. when, when the newspapers and the media and the, and the, and the uh, journals come out and they say what the, what, what the government wants them to say, they may be right, but why would we believe them? So they, there's, there's no way to know but I'm suspicious of something like that because I'm watching the tyranny of what the state is doing. And what I want to talk about in the the rest of the podcast today is a little bit, I want to lead up to something that really, really struck me um, about what's happening with experimental youth authorization and the mandates. So the next article I saw was in the Epoch Times, and it was just said that a Louisiana teenager was given a COVID-19 vaccine without parental permission, okay? So this story says, just briefly, it says a 16-year-old boy was injected with a COVID-19 vaccine in Louisiana on a recent school day, despite his parents not granting permission. A parent's signature is required for anyone 17 or younger who wants a COVID-19 vaccine, according to the Louisiana Department of Health. Um, The signature of the mother can be seen on a vaccine consent form. But the family's lawyer said she did not sign it, nor did her son forge her signature. Huh. Did huh. he want, I guess he wanted the vaccine. No, so. no. Oh, he didn't. He wanted, he was going to, he didn't, he felt peer, it says in the article that um, the boy initially thought he was signing up to get the vaccine at a later date and planned to discuss this, whether to get the jab with his mom, the family's lawyer said. When he learned the shots were happening at that time, he felt pressure to get one. I can understand one. that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, again, why are they so eager to vaccinate vaccinate sixteen year olds? Yeah, 
They want everybody vaccinated. Why? Everybody, even if you've already gotten it. Yeah. The question again is why, all right? And mm-hmm. what are the ethics behind it, mm-hmm. right? Because this just this just is this isn't kosher. And as you know, we talked about. I think we might have mentioned in the last time that the uh, FDA and this is from uh, this is a little bit of cynicism from my friend Jennifer Margulis, um, who she's uh, one of the co-authors of the Vaccine Friendly Plan with Paul Thomas. Remember her? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Of course. Okay. So she put out, she sends out a newsletter, I think once a week or something like that. And she says, the good folks at the FDA have now approved uh, the mRNA injections for five to 11 year olds. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Exciting, she says. <laughs> the FDA vote was nearly unanimous with 17 members approving, one abstaining. Nobody said no. Okay. So it would be interesting to find out who these people, who these board members are that vote. And what is their conflicts of interest? Not one person thought that the, wait a minute, you know, giving it to five to 11 year olds when they're not really affected by it and they don't get really sick and they don't get hospitalized and they don't die. And we're gonna give it, we're gonna give it to them as an emergency youth authorization. Yes. As if there's an emergency in five to 11 year olds. Right. What's the emergency? And not acknowledging the myocarditis and the blood clots and all of that that's, that that's happening. And looking at the European countries who have decided that anybody under 30 is needs to be exempt from this because they're not at risk. Right. And interestingly to note um, that as of October 28th of 21, we want to make it clear that when this was passed, that there are no kids right now who have myocarditis or blood clots, ages 5 to 11. Who said that? No, I'm saying that that's the oh. case. So <laughs> right. let's see what happens in the coming months once they start vaccinating unnecessarily, in my opinion, people who are five to 11 years old routinely. And now, well, we'll get to it in a second. The CDC is basically confirming that and um, saying that uh, uh, they're, they're supporting the FDA. And so now it's going to become part of the, your, your vaccine schedule, yeah, even though it's that. still EUA. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Eric Rubin of Harvard University, he's a physician and he's one of the 17 people that voted positive, voted for it. He basically was, his quote has been going around the internet and they, they took it out of context. Well, they, they say they took it out of context. It says his quote is, it's really going to be a question of what the prevailing conditions are, but we're never going to learn about how safe this vaccine is until we start giving it. Experimental. Right. Right. I mean, that's very similar to Nancy Pelosi's thing. You know, you have to pass the bill to find out what's in it. Um, So (laughs) that's I mean, we're going to we're going to start using five to 11 year olds as experimental. So there's a um, um, a writer from Minneapolis who said, well, that's not fair because the comments and the situation deserve some context. So first, let's look at a fuller comments from Dr. Rubin a professor at Harvard University and editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. Hmm. Hmm. The editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, the New England Journal of Medicine puts out an article that says it's safe in pregnancy and doesn't cause miscarriage. Same guy that's voting to give it to five to 11-year-olds. Yeah. A lot of, so he says, this is, a much, this is Dr. Rubin. He says, this is a much tougher one, I think, than we had expect, expected coming into it. The data show that this vaccine works and is pretty safe. Okay, pretty fits into the word with, you know, higher risk. 
What is exactly what is pretty safe mean? Right. That means it's partially unsafe. Okay. And yet we're worried about a side effect that we can't measure yet, but it's probably real. Okay. And we see a benefit that isn't the same as it is in older patients. We do. It's very sort of personal choice. If I had a child who was a transplant recipient, I would really want to be able to use the vaccine. And there are certain kids who probably should be vaccinated. So I'm gonna to vote to vaccinate all of them. Right? <laughs> the question of how broadly to use, I think is a substantial one. And I know it's not a question, and I know we're kind of punting that to the ACIP. The ACIP is the FDA's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. They're the committee that makes these decisions. But I do think it's a relatively close call. It's really going to be a question of what the prevailing conditions are, but we're never going to learn how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it. That's just the way it goes. That's how we found out about rare complications of other vaccines, like coronavirus vaccine. I don't know what he's talking about. That is what we're talking about. And I do mm -hmm. think we should vote to approve it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he says that, you know, if you have a transplant kid, you should be able to get the vaccine. Well, fine. Have an emergency youth authorization for kids getting transplant. Give them the option. Right. Yeah. Not kids mm -hmm. who are, you know, you know, playing AYSO soccer at age seven. And they're probably going to need to have that in California. Pretty soon they'll need to have their coronavirus vaccine or they won't be able to play soccer. You see where I'm going with this, with the, with the tyranny and stuff like that? Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. yep. Okay. We knew, we saw it coming. So in the Daily Wire, um, a news article came out today. No, I guess it was yesterday. The CDC recommends Pfizer shot for kids ages 5 to 11. So on the heels of the FDA approving it, the CDC is now recommending it. On Tuesday, the Center for Disease Control recommended the Pfizer-BioTech COVID-19 vaccine for children ages five to 11. Like that was a shock, like that was not gonna happen, right? Right, right. Endorsement by my, one of my favorite people, the CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, not my favorite person, was the last step before doctors, nurses, and pharmacists could start giving the shots, the Wall Street Journal reported. Um, Together with science leading the charge, we have taken another important step forward in our nation's fight against the virus that causes COVID-19, Walensky said. As a mom, I encourage parents with questions to talk to their pediatrician, school nurse, or local pharmacist to learn more about the vaccine and the importance of getting their children vaccinated. Walensky said previously she thinks that kids should keep wearing face coverings in school even if they've received the COVID-19 vaccine. Okay. I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. What more can I say about Rochelle Walensky? Okay. So um, this leads me to a, a blog by a guy named Dr. Charlie DC, which I guess he's a chiropractor. Somebody sent me this. One of our listeners actually sent me this and I thought I'd read it and I did and I printed it out. And it's really, I think, something that I, I wanna sort of read into the record, if this is a record, because this leads me to the final article, which I wanna talk about, which is where I'm, I'm headed with everything. Um, so Dr. Charlie writes, I believe that most humans are good at heart and want what's best for everybody, all right? I would argue that that's not necessarily the case, but I understand where he's coming from. Mm -hmm. I know that you probably think that, right? You know, somehow the good at heart end up doing a lot of damage. Yeah. 
You know, today's solution, you know, today's problems were yesterday's solutions. It's a very interesting thought that, that somebody thought at one point it was good to medicalize birth. Yeah. And now it's a problem, right? But at the time they thought it was a solution. Isn't that interesting? All right. However, when it comes to medicine and science, logic needs to be at the forefront of your thought process. Just like you said, wisdom, you said wisdom, but I would say logic and wisdom sort of in the same essence. Mm -hmm. This is the challenge because people truly believe that these vaccines have eradicated diseases safely. So when you try to talk any logic with people on this subject, the emotions of people force them to come at you from a perspective of them thinking you don't care about people and their well-being. So in other words, if you don't want to wear a mask or you don't want to be vaccinated, it's because you want people to die. Yeah, and you're right. selfish. Yeah, you're selfish. Mm -hmm. First, any person that starts out by saying, well, what about polio? The polio vaccine. They haven't done their re they haven't done their research, he says. If you do your own research, you will see that when the thing was when the, the vaccine was introduced for polio, polio was already 90% gone. It wasn't being introduced in the middle of the polio pandemic. The second thing I want to mention is that after World War II and the Nazi concentration camps, there was a law known as the Nuremberg Code. This was a universal law that in 1947 said that never again would anyone be forced to take any drug, vaccine, or have any experimental surgeries after what was witnessed in the concentration camps. This law was never legally broken until 2015 in SB 276 in California, which is the, you have to be vaccinated to go to school law. And think about that and the slippery slope that it leads to. That and it no has, has led to. <laughs> it has led yeah. to it. Well, yeah, that's what he's talking about. Yeah. And it's, op it's opened his eyes. He says, number one by far is that since 1986, the uh, vaccine manufacturers are not liable for any injury or harm caused by their product. Okay. Mm -hmm. Read that again and again and again. Vaccine manufacturers are not liable for any injury or harm caused by their product. If someone is not liable to ever get sued or held accountable for their product, what incentive do they have to keep it safe? Right? Do you really think that shareholders and their companies don't have money mindset first and foremost? Of course they do. Okay? Mm -hmm. And you want to know something else that should frustrate you? Along with this act in 1986, the government set up the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program which is funded by a trust fund from the government, right? $5 billion have almost have been paid out through that fund. And where has that money coming from? Taxpayers. Correct. God, you're smart. <laughs> <laughs> so vaccine companies make billions. Mm -hmm. When an injury occurs, the taxpayers pay the, pay the damages. What a deal. Yeah. What a deal, okay? Number two is the claim that vaccines are proven to be safe. Why they have never really been proven to be safe, the biggest reason is because no studies have control groups, all right? True control groups. And I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, but the control group would be someone who is not injected with anything other than saline if it were a true control group. Right. However, in these studies, the control group is injected with the vaccine being tested, except they take out the DNA virus or whatever pathogen they are going after, but leave in all the metals and toxic chemicals, which are still injected, and most of the issues and cause most of the issues in the first place. So, in other words, the placebo group gets the 
aluminum, the polyethyl glycol, polyethylene glycol, the, the uh, chick embryos, the whatever, I don't know what the DNA, whatever they put in there, that still gets injected in the arm. That's the thing that causes your arm to be sore. Yeah. Not the DNA from the, from the vaccine, uh, from the virus that causes your, your arm to be sore. It's the stuff. So they inject that into both people, the vaccine in one and the junk in the other. And they both say, my arm hurts. They say, see, there's no difference. <laughs> vaccine doesn't cause a problem. That's what they do. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I knew this. I just want to be sure that all our listeners know this. Yeah. Yeah. Right. During these studies, by the way, after they inject the vaccine in the study, how long do they monitor the um, side effects for? Any, any idea? I don't, but obviously not enough to know long-term. Two to five days. Yeah. <laughs> so if there are no bad reactions after two to five days, they're deemed safe. Yeah, if you don't die instantly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the other thing with studies that most people have heard by now is that whoever funds the study will pretty much manipulate to get the results they want. Right. And he suggests that people watch the movie Vaxxed, which... Oh, absolutely. And now Vaxxed 2 is out. Yeah, Vax 2 is a little different. Vax 2 is a story of people who've been injured, which is which is different than the science sort of, well, you know, I haven't seen Vax 2, so I wouldn't, shouldn't comment that much. But Vax really breaks down. It, do they get into the science in that one too? Oh, I, both of them are very good to watch. Okay. Don't remember specifically, but they're both very good to watch. Did you know that the CDC owns 20 vaccine patents? I didn't know that specifically, but I am not surprised. And sells about 4.5 billion worth of them every year. Do you think knowing that, that they would come out and say how toxic some of these vaccines are? It's back to his statement that he says most people are good at heart and want what's best for everybody. I'm not sure that people on corporate boards or people who work for the CDC or the, F or the NIH actually, actually are good at heart. Yeah. Bill Gates is the top funder for the CDC. Yeah, <laughs> it's a government agency. Okay, so of course he wants to inject the world. He says it fills his pockets tremendously. I mean, I'm not sure he needs to have his pockets filled anymore. Anyway, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what motivates Bill Gates anymore. I won't even try to get into the psychology, but he could spend you know a million dollars a day for the next hundred years and he wouldn't he would be out of money. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think it's money. Right. Um. After him is uh, the next, the other big funders of the CDC, Disney, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, Merck, Pfizer, J&J, &J, Dell, Facebook, Kaiser, PayPal. list goes on. Those companies use their airtime commercials and Facebook ads to push the vaccine. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that people know this stuff, but to hear it, uh, to see it on paper, do you realize that Facebook is banning people who, who question the vaccine or at least putting a warning on it? Meanwhile, they're funding the CDC, which is promoting the vaccine. I mean, Facebook's right. done some really bad stuff, including with elections too, but, but this is something I really didn't know. Okay, the modern schedule of vaccine has never been tested. And what he means by that is every study done has researched one vaccine at a time. But the current schedule gives children multiple vaccines at once. And at certain ages, rather quick turnaround times to their next round of vaccines. They never tested giving measles, mumps, and rubella at the same time. They never tested giving 
you know, uh, three other, I think there's one time where you get six vaccines at one visit. Crazy. They've tested each vaccine, again, for two to five days or whatever they tested them for, but they never tested two or three or four vaccines given to the some person at the same time. And yet that's yeah, what we do. And you know, if, again, like, let's just go to common sense, right? Um, if, if your body was hit with so many different uh, viruses at the same time naturally, it would it would put a, it would really be hard for your body to fight those things. So you know we're just again we're not using common sense that your body is weakened by some of this stuff when it's fighting it. So you, yeah. And it gets back. By the way, it gets back to your initial thing earlier in the show where you talked about why do we need studies to prove something that's obvious? All right. right. Mm-hmm. They haven't studied it, but it's obvious that when you challenge, when you're right, when you inject something into the body that's a toxin that we know can cause even local effects or low-grade fever for a day or two, and you're giving people six of them at the same time? Yeah, I mean, and don't even, study I'm not even to say that that's into the, I'm not even getting into the toxins. I'm just talking about your body fighting a virus or you know using its immune system to work through something, it's it's taxing on your system. So if you're fighting that many things all at the same time, um, it's it's too much. Yeah, the blood-brain barrier, if you haven't figured it out yet, has just a barrier system that protects our brain from toxins and doesn't fully develop until about age seven. Have you seen how many things are injected by age seven with the standard vaccine schedule? It's 32 different vaccine, or not different vaccine, 32 injections. Sometimes it's repetitive, like hepatitis, hepatitis, hepatitis. Um, and 38 if they take their recommended flu shot too. So that's 32 to 38 doses of mercury or aluminum or polysorbate 80 and the viruses and animal blood and the rest of the carcinogenic chemicals, it's absurd. A newborn, by the way, up until, I think they're talking about ages five to 11, maybe uh, for the COVID vaccine, basing it on weight. So that's the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. But up until this time, they've never done that. So a newborn gets the same dose as an adult. No other medicine does this. If you ever give antibiotics to your dog or to a child, you do it by weight and by maybe age or whatever with a, with a vet, with a pet, but you do it by weight. Right. But not with vaccines. Okay, with, when you take your uh, animal to the vet, the first thing you do is check the weight and the age of the animal, but not with our children. Okay, then he goes through a bunch of stuff and then he gets to um, thimerosal, which is also known as mercury, okay? The Eli, Eli Lilly material safety data sheet acknowledges that exposure to thimerosal in utero and in children can cause severe mental retardation and gross motor impairment. Your doctor tells you that when pregnant, um, oh, that the your doctor tells you that the flu to get the flu shot, all right, when you're pregnant, the flu shot contains 25 micrograms of mercury. I looked it up; it actually does. Okay, the EPA states that 0.45 micrograms of mercury per pound of body weight is the absolute maximum safety dose for mercury. Going by those guides, a single flu shot should be safe for a 550-pound human being. <laughs> and we give these to kids that don't even weigh 10 pounds. Okay, so pharma has caught on to people understanding why thimerosal is so, and they have created thimerosal-free vaccines. 
So what do they use instead of mercury? What? Aluminum. Aluminum. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. aluminum toxicity is basically is basically neurologic damage because it accumulates in the brain similar to mercury. I think these are important, you know, these are important facts. I mean, everybody knows a little bit about how oh, that's, you know, shouldn't have aluminum, should have, but but this is really interesting for me. And I'm hoping it's interesting for the listeners to hear this. And I'm hoping that you're okay with all this because I'm, I'm like monologuing here. So yeah. Chime in whenever you want. Yeah, um, no, I'm going to let you go. So here are some statistics on what the FDA says the maximum exposure to a safe, to be safe of aluminum. A 50 pound child, the maximum safe is 113 micrograms of aluminum. And a 350 pound adult is 794.5 micrograms of aluminum. At birth, the hepatitis B vaccine is given to children and contains 250 micrograms of aluminum, which is twice the safe dose of a 50-pound kid. Right. For a disease that's sexually transmitted or of IV drug abusers, yep. who the hospital checks even, even if the parents, most parents come in with a negative hepatitis screening anyway, but if the hospital is suspicious, they can check the parents. If the parents are negative, there's no reason to give this vaccine. And yet they yet everybody from the American Academy of Pediatrics to ACOG to everybody recommends, well, ACOG doesn't make recommendations for babies, but they recommend that uh, all baby, all newborn babies get hepatitis vaccine. The CDC recommends. Okay. And again, why? <laughs> right? Why? Well, why? it may get back to the fact that the corporate boards are and the CDC are 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 one and the same. Right. There's a revolving door that goes back and forth and, 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 and big tech and big money are involved in it. Yeah. Um, so what does common sense tell you about this? So the big, the big debate is always, do these vaccines cause autism? And my answer to that is that these shots contain a significant amount of neurotoxins. This is the guy saying that. Yeah. That means that they have the ability to excite and change the nervous system what a neurotoxin does. So does it cause autism? They're telling you it doesn't. But what is your, what is your bliss common sense meter telling you? Well, you can, you can look at the uh, increased, uh, you know, I don't know if you have those statistics there, but in that movie that he recommends that you watch Vaxxed, they show the um, correlation between an increased risk, uh, increased amount of autism in our population correlated to the increase in vaccinations at the, the same time in um, history. So something, if it's not the vaccines, it's environmental stuff, but you know, it's definitely increasing greatly and we don't know why for sure. Okay. So it should be your choice. Vaccination should be your choice no matter what. And you should be able to do exactly what you want to do because it's about bodily autonomy. And if you don't have bodily autonomy, um, you don't have really anything. There's no freedom. Yeah. The whole vaccine thing is just getting started, he says. And we know this to be true. It's actually not just getting started. It's been started. Yeah. But you think you won't hear about a Corona booster the rest of your life? Every right. single year from now on, you'll hear about it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then... Um, um, Many people are picking up that we vaccinate for pointless reasons, sort of what 
emphasize what you just said. <laughs> so the government pharma always needs to instill fear in the population to push their medical agenda. Coronavirus is the perfect example of that. Everything was, a fishy, was fishy about it from the start. You have all these cases popping up and little cases counters by the minute on news, on news stations to subconsciously program fear into you and make the, make the administration, which was the Trump administration at the time, look as bad as they possibly can. By the way, he says, those counters, those case counters disappeared immediately after the election. You notice that? No. Maybe, maybe you don't watch TV, so you probably didn't notice it, but. No. Then he gets into PCR tests and then he gets into other stuff. And I, I, wanna, I wanna get to the last article because we're gonna run out of time. But he says two last things. First, if the pandemic were as bad as they say it is, then all of our borders would be sealed shut, no questions asked. And any doctor who came forward saying that they have a great success with certain therapies wouldn't be censored and shamed, but rather embraced, and those therapies would be administered immediately. Okay? Yes. Okay. Well, he recommends that people, if you're gonna get the vaccine, you take glutathione. Okay. Right. He says it's a master antioxidant and barrier protectant, like a blood-brain barrier. So. If you're forced to get the vaccine because you're being coerced unethically and immorally, um, and you have to get it because you have to make a living or you have to do whatever you do, then go get some glutathione and get it going in your body. Didn't say the dose, but I'm, I'm sure that that's available on the internet. Okay? Great. Okay. So again, this gets me to the last point I wanted to make. Um, and I sort of worked myself backwards because uh, somebody sent me this article as well. This is from October 25th. And um, I think it came through Physicians for Informed Consent, which is the group that I belong to. And, you know, we've talked about them before. Mm -hmm. uh, they're a group that supports private practice and they support uh, uh, informed consent and autonomy and decision making. And they do everything that the AMA doesn't. Um, they're like America's frontline doctors. They're out there advocating for what's ethical and moral and, and, and giving people the information so they can make a logical decision about what to yeah. do. Yeah. All right. So this guy's name is Patrick Byrne and he's a CEO of the America project. He was the previous founder of overstock.com. So people, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people have heard of overstock. Okay. Yeah. So dear ladies and gentlemen of the medical profession, I'm old enough to remember when physicians were held in regard like deacons. Medicine was understood to be not just a profession, but a calling. It was not uncommon to see a car parked haphazardly with a physician on call sign on the dashboard and no one gave it a second thought. Such was the regard for medical doctors. Watch reruns of MASH for fine illustration of how this calling was once understood to act as a special moral beacon within society. Um, I'm going to hopefully get through this without getting choked up. Byrne writes, one great teacher had a tremendous influence on my life, even eventually giving me some titles by a woman named uh, Hannah Arndt, A-R-E-N-D-T. The book that she talked about was Eichmann in Jerusalem, a study on the banality of evil. I mean, everybody probably knows who Adolf Eichmann was. He was the architect of the final solution in World War II. Yeah. Um, uh, Adolf Eichmann uh, was hiding out in Argentina post-World War II. In 1962, Mossad agents captured him, returned him to Israel. There, a special courthouse was built and hundreds of world's journalists and I, for, for the journalist, and Eichmann was put on trial. 
The world's journal journalists dutifully filled stories about the monster in the courtroom, the man who had liquidated six million Jews, reported on the terror they felt being in a room with such a villain. Hannah Arndt, however, wrote something entirely different. She looked at Eichmann and saw a man in a gray flannel suit, a mediocrity, who did not particularly dislike Jews. He initially sought to resettle the Jews in Palestine, but when that became impossible, he went to plan B and created an industry to liquidate them with no more apparent thought than one would give to organizing a filing cabinet. He saw himself more like one who had made schedules for trains. He plotted the needs, calculated the resources, counted back the requisite number of steps, and built the execution checklist and the schedule. There is no evidence that he gave it any thought different from what would that one would do in calculating a garbage removal system for a large city. No evidence he gave it at all a lot of moral deliberation, said Hannah Arndt. Eichmann was less a monster and more a representative of modernity's great marvel, a faceless bureaucratic accomplishing bureaucrat accomplishing great evil. A faceless bureaucrat accomplishing great evil. The genius of the Nazis had been to break evil up into a million little pieces and scatter it across society so very few pairs of hands belonged to someone who felt evil. Yes, we know of the German guards who killed prisoners and later said, I was just following orders. Such men were in direct contact with the evil. But what of the man who scheduled the train runs? He was a minor gear in the machine. In any case, the socialist experiment that was National Socialism left us with a number of clear-cut lessons. The single most gruesome aspect of Nazism, the death camps, gave birth to the most clear-cut and greatest lesson of all, but the Nuremberg Code of 1947. The Nuremberg Code holds that medical experiments can only be performed on people with voluntary and informed consent. That is to say, the subject must be informed of the risks. The subject must consent to having the experiment performed. And the consent must be voluntary, not coerced. And the obligation to ascertain compliance falls upon every medical professional involved in the process. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. Think about this in today's context. I am very right. much so, yes. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, should be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of force, fraud, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion. This is directly from the Nuremberg Code of 1947. Yeah. It should have sufficient knowledge and comprehension of the elements of the subject matter involved as to enable him to make an understanding and enlightened decision. That just sounds like you and me talking about breach birth too. The latter element requires that before the acceptance of an affirmative decision by the experimental subject, there should be made known to him the nature, duration, purpose of the experiment. And this sounds like uh, something Hermine Hayes Klein would say, doesn't it? I was just thinking that um, the only thing that they're telling us is that they're safe and effective. That that's the informed consent that we're getting. Yeah, you're getting to my my end my end point here, which is oh shit, sorry. No, no, don't. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're getting. I'm glad people. I'm putting this whole thing together today, starting with you know the um, the uh, New England Journal of Medicine article and the guy from the New England General sitting on the committee and the 16 year old getting vaccinated without parental consent and. There's a purpose for this. Um, I forgot where I left off. Let's see. Uh, oh, it should be made known to him 
the nature, duration, purpose of the experiment, the method by means of which it is to be conducted, all inconveniences and hazards reasonably to be expected, and the effects upon his health or person which may possibly come from his participation in the experiment. The duty and responsibility for ascertaining the quality of the consent rests upon each individual who initiates, directs, or engages in the experiment. It is personal duty and responsibility which may not be delegated to another with impunity. So what he's getting at, and we'll get to this in a second, is the, the nurse or the doctor who's injecting the arm is like the person who scheduled the trains. Yeah. So that gruesome experience aspect of Nazi era never has a chance to be repeated. Every nation of the world signed off on the Nuremberg Code in 1947. Every nation in the world. All the world agreed that medical experiments required the voluntary and informed consent of the subjects. There could be no more clear-cut line between lawful order and savagery than this line. In fact, I believe it's a violation that is considered a crime against humanity. And it is, that's what it says. Okay, so he says, ladies and gentlemen of the medical profession, your oath that you are not mere corporate employees, but scientists seeking the best for your patients. You are failing your oaths. American physicians are participating in violation of the Nuremberg Code of 1947. Their example is leading physicians around the world to follow them. If you are up on the research, you know to this point that what society is being told to do is medically irresponsible. For example, of 100,000 children who get COVID-19, about two die. We're going to vaccinate 100,000 kids with a vaccine that is not really a vaccine as much as nanotechnology, um, which evidence already shows will accumulate in the ovaries of females. Do we have any idea what the long-term effect of that will be? Answer, no. No one does. Look at the vials of the vaccine. They all say EUA on them, experimental use authorization. Now look again at the opening principle number one of the Nuremberg Code. The voluntary consent of the human subject is absolutely essential. This means that the person involved should have legal capacity to give consent, to be so situated as to be able to exercise free power of choice without the intervention of any element of fraud, force, deceit, duress, overreaching, or other ulterior form of constraint or coercion. I've read this before. The Nuremberg Code principle number one, given our understanding of the decaying short-term benefits of vaccination, along with our total lack of understanding of long or even midterm risks, there is simply no chance in hell you can say that you are administrating this vaccine to people who are properly informed. Yep. And you know that your patients are not making this decision voluntarily. People coming in now are people who are having their lives and livelihoods threatened. They're being coerced, which means yes. it is not voluntary, mm -hmm. which means you are participating in a medical experiment where the subjects are not truly informed of the risks of the subject's involvement and the subject's involvement has been coerced. So you, my colleagues, are violating Nuremberg Code of 1947. I would say you are not the guard at Auschwitz guilty, but I would put you a notch or two about worse than the railway station schedule maker. You are cogs, but not minor cogs. Put it this way. If Hawkeye Pierce, for our younger listeners, he was the doctor on MASH, <laughs> read up on ivermectin and believed it to be helping early treatment, 
I do not see him taking an order from a bureaucrat to not prescribe it. I see him taking a stand knowing he might lose his job. Mic drop, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you can argue with this, but how do you argue with this? It's experimental. It's EUA. Yeah. You don't know the risks and you're coercing people to do it. Yeah. You're violating the Nuremberg Code. You are very little different than the guy who made the train schedules. As he said, you know, there are people who are as guilty as the guards. All right. We all know their names. <laughs> Dr. Fauci. Um, or he could be even higher up than that. But everybody that's participating in this willingly, or even enthusiastically, like the like the doctors that I played, the doctor I played the, the tapes of a few podcasts ago, just mm -hmm. laughing and smiling about how how she felt the burn when she got injected and she got sick for a day and she knew it was working. And, and, and everybody who's been, you know, had COVID and has natural immunity should still get vaccinated. I mean, and they do this, they're, they're all guilty. And someday there may become a reckoning. I hope not because the world will be in such turmoil. I don't want the world to go through what it went through 70 years ago, 80 years ago, but, yeah. um, Someday, my colleagues, well, there will be a reckoning. Banning ivermectin, pharmacies that won't fulfill it, uh, you know, medical boards that are going to uh, censor people or take away their license for prescribing it, or people who got fired for it for prescribing these things, or for for giving in people informed consent, or ACOG for saying that if you counsel people about the vaccine and they decide not to take it, you must have counseled them wrong. All right. I don't consent. When you're when you're silent like that, yeah. I even know that 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 you're contemplating something, yeah. or I've sort of blown you, or maybe I've blown you away a little bit. I know this is a very <laughs> heavy subject for our podcast, but I read that thing and I said, I how how this is my forum to get things out to the world. Yeah. I mean, you said it was important to you and, and you are very moved in reading it. And I'm connected to, to that part of you. And um, you make a good point. You make a good point. And I'm glad that you read it. And the only thing that's left for me to say is I don't consent. And I think that that is um, what we need to be saying is I have the information and against um, the social pressures and the things that are happening, I do not consent. Yeah, we've had a interesting. We've had a great ride today, you and I. We went from uh, home birthing a breach in twins to the Nuremberg, to the, to the Nuremberg trials. But uh, all all these things are credibly important. Yeah. So thank you for doing for putting it all together, Stu. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's great to see you too. And just I want everybody to understand that placentas do not disobey the laws of physics. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll end on that note. Um, again, thanks, thanks to our sponsors. Thanks you for listening, everybody. Uh, comments are welcome. Uh, please share us. Please give, give the little thing about sharing and, and reviews and stuff, will you? Oh, it's all, it's all at the end. It's all oh, it is? But the only thing that there is to say is bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 